0: I would say that like asking questions is like the fundamental root of philosophy and then because the types of answers that you give to questions uh, always go back to like how the question is structured how it's formatted what you assume
1: you are listening to And if love remains a unique show spotlighting people ideas science culture and art your host Mike Lovett. Lovett. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Lovett, and yes, the doctor is in the house, Doctor Elias Axel Pedersen. Welcome. Glad to have you back. That's a funny intro. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> you know, gotta gotta you know mess with it once in a while. have some fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have a f- fantastic guest today. We have uh, uh, AJ Matula who is a podcast host. He hosts the Road to Reason podcast. You can check it out by going to YouTube and just type in the Road to Reason podcast and and AJ's um, podcast will come up. Welcome to the show, AJ. I'm really glad to, to have you on today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, and as
0: well as being a podcast host, I'm also a piano student of the Doctor himself. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's right, that's right. That's it it that, was yeah. it was Aaliyah said that, that said, "Hey, we've got to get AJ on. He's a really smart guy. I think he's starting a podcast, and he's a you know musician, and it kind of right up our alley. So um, this this will this will be fun. So AJ." Tell uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, obviously you, you worked with Elias, but but maybe a little bit about your music background and then your f- uh, philosophy background and and your the reason that you started your podcast.
0: Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I'll start with music because um, at least as an academic pursuit, that has been like the longest going thread in my life. I I got my bachelor's degree in music, and I took piano lesson. I've taken piano lessons uh, since I was about 14. Um, and I went to the Crane School of Music, which is in Potsdam, New York, to get my bachelor's in piano performance. And I've studied with a lot of different great teachers. And I met Elias at a summer festival called uh, Adamant. And he was my studio professor. And we got along really, really well. And we had a lot of very, very long drawn out lessons together and then continued to study uh, with each other through Skype uh, and Zoom after we w- we finished our time at Adamant together. So that's how I got to know Elias. And that's generally been my very, very baseline kind of fundamental music progression. Like started piano lessons as an early teenager, got my degree in piano, and now I'm kind of uh, independently studying.
2: Can I just intersperse one little thing here? Uh- when when AJ was studying piano with me, I feel that I was studying philosophy with him. So we got into these very interesting discussions, and, and it was great because uh, we got to delve into some of the paradoxes of music. I feel that they're just at the at the endpoints and the limits of, of interpretation. You just feel okay. What was what was being written? What was meant? Uh, is that possible? Who
0: cares? You
2: know all those kinds of ideas. So I, I really enjoyed. Teaching from him, teaching him, and learning from him,
0: so. and playing cards,
2: and playing cards. That's right. We did have <laughs> a lot of fun times at Adamant. Yeah, yeah. and I, and I hope I I'm sure that will return and we'll we'll go back in the future. It's a beautiful place in, in Vermont.
1: Yeah, it's oh, yeah. really amazing. Yeah. A, AJ, so where where do you live then? Where are you based out
0: of? Yeah, so right now I live in upstate New York, nearish okay. to the Albany area. Um, and I yeah I live in a pretty just mellow suburban area around mm-hmm. there. And, um, most of my online, most of my interactions that are musical these days in terms of like teaching and communicating are online, you know, uh, cause of my, my area isn't super, super musically involved. Like there isn't really a symphony nearby or anything. Um, and also like teaching online is easier, not only because of my location, but because of the pandemic and all of
1: that. So sure, mm-hmm. sure. Okay, and then and then so you started this this podcast, and and you wanted to focus on on philosophy. So, um, where did uh, your your interest in philosophy come from, and and you know what is it about philosophy that, that intrigues you, and and who are some of your um, you know uh, uh, you know big influences in in that realm? Yeah, yeah,
0: that's a great question. Um, I would say that philosophy is something that has always been in the background of my life ever since i was a kid and all i mean by that is i was a super annoying kid who asked a lot of questions about stuff all the time <laughs> um why why but why yeah well exactly yeah when i went uh on a diamond mine expedition when i was like in the first grade with some of my friends like I bombarded our tour guide with questions. Oh, why do the diamonds look like this? Oh, why do they come from here? Oh, why are some bigger than others? And like a- at the end of it, like every single kid like won some award for something, and like I I won the like scientist award for asking the most questions. <laughs> when in reality, that definitely meant like I was the most annoying kid there. <laughs> um, so uh, I would say that like asking questions is like the fundamental root of philosophy. And then because the types of answers Mm -hmm. that you give to questions uh, always go back to like how the question is structured, how it's formatted, what you assume when you're about to answer something. So like asking questions and like, I would say that, uh, like for many years, at least like being a pianist was like the foreground of my life. But like Mm -hmm. philosophy has always been the background of my life. Uh, yeah, it's always like, I feel like, um, i was a like philosopher who used piano as an extension for philosophizing you know like Hmm. piano always felt very interconnected with um like asking questions about you know reality in a way that's more metaphysical that like can't be maybe you know satisfactorily answered by a scientific domain like physics for example which has its own important things to say about reality but philosophy connects uh, particularly well with music. One of the reasons why being the fact that, uh, instrumental music at least is not, uh, directly representational of the world in the same way that languages, for example, right. like we can use language to denote concepts or other like refer to specific things like, uh, in a generalized way or a more specific way. Um, and in music, uh, music has certain like parallels to language. For example, the fact that it can be broken up into different like groups like phrases is akin to like different uh, linguistic structures like sentences exist, for example. But on a more specific basis, uh, music is something that's uh, it actually generates it. What I would say it generates feelings from us and it generates thoughts from us that are not actually representing what like music is actually referring to, but like creating pockets of meaning right
2: so, so i have an interesting thought you mentioned language as being <clears throat> you know general or specific a couple couple things come to mind one is just for fun i've looked up uh different different uh, videos on youtube about difficult languages and there happens to be one that's extremely oh. difficult and was created by somebody to basically encompass all possible ideas and meanings of of whatever it is whatever word so in english you know we, we might have a word that has many meanings depending on how you say it or in what context it's used. Um, and this language that was created was trying to circumvent that and just say, "Okay, this is." There's one word that represents one idea, uh, and and you know, with different inflections and trying to borrow from all languages of the world. But it's it's very difficult, and and nobody actually speaks it. And uh, I don't even know if that's possible because you can keep going down that rabbit hole. Uh, so that's one thought to, to mull over and maybe. You know, respond to. And the other thought is what Mendelssohn said. I always remember, and I just had to bring it up because I couldn't remember how he said it, but um, his quote is, so people often complain that music is too ambiguous, that what they should think when they hear uh, hear it is so unclear, whereas everyone understands words. With me, it is exactly the opposite, and not only with regard to an entire speech, but also with individual words. These two seem to me so ambiguous, so vague, so easily misunderstood in comparison to genuine music, which fills the soul with a thousand things better than words. Uh, the thoughts which are expressed to me by music that I love are not too indefinite to put, be put into words, but on the contrary, too definite. So I, I always read that and felt so interesting because especially when we teach, uh, we we don't really have a way to directly exemplify or... Um, or model maybe the music into language or put it into words uh, you know so we give a lot of uh imagery like oh well, this part could be like a waterfall or, or whatnot um and so mendels is Mendelssohn's basically saying a waterfall could mean many things to different people whereas the music means the same thing which i don't necessarily agree with i think it's very cultural but i don't know i'm just kind of ranting on well, here i want i if think you have thoughts
1: I think, and it just I would just want to jump in, and yeah. then I, I definitely want to hear AJ. But um, you know, a lot of times it's it's you know, language is like symbol to me. Like I think of mm-hmm. language, and it's like the symbol of what we're trying to express. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's not the thing; it's the symbol of the thing. Where music, you know, is the thing, and sometimes we mistake mm-hmm. music as trying to express something when it's really that is the thing that is like that should that we should be talking about if that makes sense oh, yeah.
2: self encapsulated yeah. almost yeah,
1: yeah well it, it, that's exactly what i was
0: thinking is that music is extraordinarily self-contained yeah. and l- well the thing about language is that it has a really really interesting um quality of being simultaneously self-contained and simultaneously overflowing itself like as like a reference point into the world and um what I what I mean by that is just that um, there are two ways that you can define a thing, and um, uh, these concepts come from semantics. And there is uh, what's called intentional language usage, and it's not uh, n- not the same type of intentional that with a T, but it's actually with an S, Um and then there's a extensional language and uh they're both ways of uh describing how words can be defined and intentional language is defined in terms of its logical relationship to other words it's much more of it's a it's almost a mathematical and deductive way of defining words for example um we say that uh if a, like, a person, if a man is unmarried, then he's a bachelor because like being unmarried is contained within the definition of being a bachelor, for example. You have to assume correlations between definitions at first, but then you can build a system of definitions that are like all interlinked with each other. And then mm. extensional language is defining something in terms of all of the possible objects in the world that that term could refer to or like abstractly put into a bucket. So you could define bachelor in terms of being unmarried and create a logical relationship between those two, which may lead to other deductions, for example, or you could define it in terms of saying, okay, we're just going to create like a set of every single unmarried man in the entire world and say like all of those people fall under the definition of bachelor. And each Mm. of them have... Uh, different qualities like advantages maybe disadvantages like intentional language usage is really really self-enclosed um, which makes it uh, it makes it really really um, like satisfactory and a good tool for linguists to use who are more interested in like logical relationships between different like words or lexical units in any given language but extensional definitions more so get to, the way that we actually pragmatically use language in the world, because we usually use language not to create uh, inevitable logical implications between different words, but we actually use words to access material that's outside of language, Right. for example. Um, so that, I, I think that those two concepts give an idea that like language is actually this very, uh, like language itself is a very forked tongue in the sense that there are two major ways <laughs> in which language can be used to define entities and they're 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 incompatible and yet they also live together mm-hmm. um so it's a it's a paradox within language and i think music has similar
1: qualities too that's, that's pretty cool that's wild yeah. um and 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 yeah so 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 talk about that like what um music as a is um maybe maybe if if we speak, if we think of music as a way of expressing ourselves um i mean cuz there is a, this kind of um tug between and at least and i have talked about this a lot the tug mm-hmm. between composer and 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 the music itself and and yep. who really owns the music you know once it's out in the world like what does that even mean and and how people can can when they hear it you know what what do they um what, what did they experience, what, what did they are experience they the ex- with it?
2: composers in a way, and the is the performer a composer and, in a way? Yeah.
1: And even even a bigger question, like why does it move us? Like mm-hmm. why why is music moving to us um, in in such a you know really almost um, uh, earthly or, or guttural way? Like like there's something about music, rhythm, tone, uh, timbre, that uh, harmony that that uniquely um, is human in a way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, and I think that the, I would say that music is a self-contained structure, for example, like a musical piece, if we were to give like an intentional definition to musical content, that it would be purely what we would think of as theoretical. For example, like how is the composition structured? What are the notes? Uh, what meter is it in, for example, all the right. self-evident relationships that are actually contained within the, the score or even the like visit. Phys- you could even uh, use physics to examine like the sonic properties of that piece, like and, you know, recording, for example, as it became actualized um, auditorially. Uh, and then you could give an extensional definition to music, which is um, what type of experiences does music generate for us? outside of the musical content itself mm-hmm. and i think that um as musicians we tend to be particularly as especially as performers we tend to be very very interested in i think what would be the extensional like quality of music right um uh, what do we get out of it that isn't necessarily contained within it itself
1: well yeah. and that gets into like i was i was you know um thinking about like the the new complexity school of music you know and how in a way, like it's it's morphed into what is on the page, and then the interpretation of what's on the page, you know, and and versus what's you know what's actually being heard, and it's almost taking music and turning it on its head, where where it's it's in and it's interesting. I don't I don't know how much I like that idea, but it's an interesting thing to think about for sure is, is like that there's so much on the page that you have to like take stuff away and, and it becomes this kind of interpretive dance that happens between composer and audience and, and the music itself.
0: Yeah, I would say that uh, actually I think it's really cool that you brought new complexity up because I think that particularly Brian Fernieho's, uh string quartets, are some of my favorite contemporary pieces of music. I think that they're really amazing. Um, and I think that, um, the, I think that new complexity in particular, um, shows what happens when we condense something that has one form into such a self, a small self-contained pocket that it almost creates the illusion of not being anything like, um, what it was previously and to give a concrete example of that so many of the um so many of the intervallic relationships and the like melodic contours of different lines in brian fernie host string quartets are actually greatly extraordinarily influenced by romanticism like if you um if you pick apart different sections you can find a lot of like brahms and Mahler, for example in yeah. like in like early schoenberg in his string quartets. But what happens is it would be the his music is the equivalent to what if the Big Bang happened in reverse? What if the universe (laughs) uh, as it exists now condensed back into like a single molecule or a single particle, a single particle of matter? And that's kind of what his music does is it takes an extraordinarily open musical space and it condenses it so, so much into like very, very thick uh, textured parts that Uh, you don't even see the resemblance anymore and it actually becomes like uh, aesthetically to most pretty unpleasant to listen to. Um, It's
2: it's kind of a kernel. You've got the kernel of everything in there. I've never heard it described as the Big Bang in reverse and for those listeners who haven't heard of Brian Fernieho or haven't seen his music it's extraordinary. You can't even see it on the page it's almost like black music i mean where it's just
1: filled right like black um, midi it, black midi it's almost
2: <laughs> yeah it's almost there where there's so much going on just to interpret um and, and i'll probably never play a sport of his just to interpret how to play and what's what's actually being written is is a, a task in it in and of itself and actually on this topic i it, it brought up the idea that in every generation of of composers and and eras, if we talk about eras, you know, we do sort of have this roller coaster where we go in and out of complexity versus, um, versus simplicity. And, you know, one one great example is the end of the Baroque when things were at its height, in terms of complexity with, uh, you know, late Bach and things like that. And then we get into the early classical with, with his son CBE and, and Mozart and Haydn, with everything being pared down to the most simple, at least in their time with their musical language, simple forms of melody and and, uh, accompaniment. So we have that going on. At at the same time, we seem to have an increase in uh, composer control, I guess one could say, and uh, what the composer wants the performer to do, and maybe even wants the audience to listen for. Uh, And so back in, in Bach's day and all those composers, they didn't really indicate a lot of things, at least for keyboard partly because there was no piano, we've, we've had podcasts on that development. But, um, you know, dynamics weren't indicated, a lot of other things weren't, weren't uh, put in. And then you get to somebody, you know, not even 100 years later, uh, like Beethoven, who tried to control as much as he could and put in all the indications, mm-hmm. uh, because he had a very specific idea of how the music should sound and, and be taken in by the listener. Um, and even compared to the, the types like Schoenberg, you mentioned, and, you know, Be- Beethoven is nowhere near that same level of, of uh, complexity. And uh, I guess the amount that he's putting in, the amount of directions that he's putting in the score uh, don't really compare. Uh, and so you get to the you know, I'm doing a huge survey here and a lot of thoughts. I don't know if there are questions in here, but you get to someone like John Cage who tries to remove himself from what we always consider that holy a Trinity a perf- triangle, if you will, the, the performer, composer, and uh, audience. Um, and he tried to remove himself. I'm not sure if he actually did. And and I feel he's one of the great philosopher composers. So I don't know. Yeah, with with all those thoughts, I wonder if you want to talk about any of that.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that you make a really good point that there seems to be like a pattern throughout like uh, – cultural art forms and history that they tend to ebb and flow between periods of relative complexity and periods of relative simplicity even around that era with john cage i think about um the oscillation between minimalism mm-hmm. and then uh, serialism mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. example which are like two forms of music that couldn't be any you know different more different from each other um but yeah, I actually haven't. I haven't done a ton of like research on John Cage um, in terms of because I know he actually wrote a couple of books, neither of which I've read. Um, mm. But one thing I find particularly interesting about Cage's music is he's one of he reminds me a lot of Beethoven, and I think he might actually have this quality even more of being a creative mind that was constantly ripping itself in half. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is he was constantly going between uh doing things like for example random chance music uh Mm -hmm. and then complete determinism for Mm -hmm. example like he as like a creative agent he really embodied and personified uh be living as a paradox you know Mm. um and that comes through like in just his output in general and even within a lot of his pieces um yeah, i, I love that my favorite exist. piece by him is the sonata uh the sonata for prepared uh, for prepared piano i love that piece
2: yeah i performed well so one thing is uh that surprised me is i got a volume of uh, his early compositions and it okay. almost sounds like a minimalist extension of Debussy. so that surprised
0: oh interesting
2: me. and then yeah. another thing is i also performed in one I, I can't say really performed his work or a work, but I was part of a performance of a work that involves so many moving parts, including some pre-recorded stuff. Uh, this was when I was at Banff, yeah. which was uh, just a wonderful opportunity for, for artists and uh, the program that I was in it no longer exists, unfortunately. But but there was a huge collaboration between the music program there and the, the uh, recording engineering pro- uh, program. And there was a piece where there are a lot of pre-recorded language, um, you know, poetry sections or little little tidbits here and there in different languages. And I recorded something in Hebrew. Uh, And then there were um, in the actual performance, the audience was uh, was instructed to sit in the middle of the hall. It was done in a sort of a black box. And then there were all these different booths, if you will, musical booths around the uh, perimeter with different instruments there were different you know smells being emitted with with uh, um you know what are those like scented candles and there were sounds that were being emitted from recordings i don't it was just a hodgepodge of everything and there were people at some of those stations that were supposed to perform or do whatever they wanted and within each of those stations it was like another musical composition that was some sometimes aleatoric and somehow and sometimes uh, determined deterministic and then the audience was instructed to if they wanted partake in some of the um, booths or musical uh, little little centers and then everybody just kind of could move around and it lasted for an hour and whatever was done or seen or recorded or smelled or heard or felt that was the composition Um, it it was a a very strange experience and i obviously never going to experience that again
0: Uh, but yeah it was it was pretty cool Yeah, I think being part of one of those ensembles would be like kind of a special experience, you know, that's because it's definitely so so outside of the daily norm, Mm -hmm. you know, getting to participate in something like that. What about you, Mike? Do you uh, do you like contemporary music? And uh, do you have any experiences with performing it or anything like that?
1: You know, I don't really. I I mean do well, I mean, <laughs> you improvise? <laughs> I mean and play jazz Yeah, and... so so I I I guess yeah, I guess define contemporary. I I very much am a uh jazz rock guy. You know, I love I nice. love my Beethoven, I love my Bach, you know, but also but grew, Led Zeppelin. But I grew up on Led Zeppelin, Rush and oh, Dream yeah. Theater. So <laughs> um and 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 you know and so I I do enjoy that and I, I love like the big picture of where music is going you know I I um and I've talked to Elias um about this you know I I really fell in love um my first experience with contemporary I guess um uh, I don't know what you call it um concert music let's call it that mm-hmm. um was was really um listening to um, um john luther adams and, and his beans him, yeah. and his bean series yeah you knew i was yeah. going there yeah, um because awesome. i do i i think it, it was such a an experience like none other where i could listen to it and and um and i felt like i understood like what the music was trying to do um and it, obviously it's very like it's meant to be ocean it's meant to be desert you know mm-hmm. <laughs> that that is the meaning of the, of the music and so but but to create sounds um that took me to those places was 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 quite an experience and so from there um you know i've enjoyed um you know you know listening and kind of with with new ears that gave me kind of new ears if you will mm-hmm. and um yeah but i do love like i i i love jazz and i love where, where contemporary jazz is going i love um um playing and, and improvising I think the the idea of music in the moment is uh like what elise was talking about with with his, um the 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 piece that, that he was performing in um i mean those kinds of experiences are one of a kind and it kind of brings back to like it, it forces one to think about or forces me to think about like all right, so what's the meaning of this? Like, what is the meaning of music? What am I experiencing? And why is this affecting me? Why, why, how is this changing my life? Because I, for me, it is a very much life change. Music is a life changing thing. Like when I hear it, it moves me to action. It moves me to thoughts that I didn't have before. Um, It's almost a prophetic experience for me. And so, um, uh, You know, that's kind of my experience with with music and and, and especially contemporary music and and what what that, so that immediacy, that that idea of like performing in the moment and, and the danger of it is exciting for me. Yeah, definitely.
0: And I feel that in that vein of, you feel like music is something that, you know, changes you as you experience it. I think that refers to a really important quality of music. And to me, I would say, I think to me it's one of the most if not the most important quality of music which is that it plays the role of materializing time mm-hmm. um for us uh time is such a abstract idea and we usually think about it in terms of linear units like mm-hmm. you know ticks and units you know, seconds minutes hours what have you um but music is actually something that exper- uh materializes time in a more substantial way that doesn't uh simply measure things but actually uh generates like new experiences of time and allows us to relate like pockets of like temporal ranges you know oh, that's to beautiful yeah a very particular Experience, you know, like I it, um, when I listen to Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto, and if you hear someone listen to something like that, a 45 minute piece, and say that they feel like they've experienced an entire lifetime while listening, there's a way in which they're not actually just uh, saying jargon, but they're actually being truthful in that because of the fact that uh, music is something that accesses our memories and it promotes nostalgia for our past and hope for our future and the types of feelings that we have about our present. And in a way music does in a similar way to how I was talking about Brian Fernie music condensing something down into a very small region. I feel that musical experience in general, um, tends to compress everything about our lives into like one space and redefines it.
1: You know, there's a, there's a, um, a composer and I cannot, I was just trying to look it up really quickly. Um and 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 it's terrible I can't remember who did it. Um but he he put together a series of six albums um that was very moving to me. Um and it's almost disturbing. Like it's it, it may be the most <laughs> I don't know how to even say this cuz it's it's like musical horror in a way um because okay. what he did is is he um he took people through like a life cycle um and it's something called memory lapse remember through a life cycle of somebody with with um alzheimer's okay and and so um the first album was kind of Yeah, nostalgic sounding music. Kind of, we would. It was. It was nothing out of the ordinary. And then the second one, you could just hear. It was the same thing, but a little degraded, and a little. And it would just. Each album progressively got more degraded, more abstract, more. I mean, literally. By the time I was, I was. (laughs) Literally, by the time I was at the end of it, I was, I was having just these unbelievable feelings of of dread. Because I was thinking of, oh, it's just what people are experiencing. With oh, the I need to hear. Was, that. I'm very curious. Yeah, about, it, it, was, it was it was absolutely insane, and and um, and 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 then the the final the final album, you know, it was almost like it. You could tell it was kind of a death store album because it was, it it was very abstract, but it you'd hear like glimpses of the of the music from the first album coming back in and out, and mm-hmm. um, it was it was just so surreal and such a um it really gave i mean honestly it gave me such empathy for people i couldn't yeah i don't think anything else could Mm -hmm. yeah
0: and i think that's one of the beautiful parts of art is it takes abstract experiences and materializes them into something that's somehow recognizable to other people. Um, and uh, your description of the piece actually reminds me of an extraordinarily famous composition that I'm sure it actually took inspiration from in some way. Um, and it's called Sitting in a Room by uh, Alvin Lucier. And the piece is literally a looped recording of a person sitting in a room and reciting a monologue of some sort. And what happens is that every single new iteration of the monologue is a re-recorded version of it. And what happens is, I think it goes, you know, somewhat like 30 times or something like that. And by the very end of it, it is just completely unrecognizable uh, and its noise. Um, And uh, that aspect of... I, I think that aspect of replication um, correlating with uh, degration over time. And decay is a concept that I'm really, really fascinated with. And it's something that we we call decay because of the fact that we have a certain set of uh, parameters that uh, uh, we use to examine what, It means for something to have a particular quality and the way we differentiate between originals of things and copies of things. When in reality, you can actually listen to uh, Sitting in a Room by uh, Alvin Lucier and you can get yourself in a mental space where you actually just hear it as like different transformations between sound types. Whereas Mm -hmm. when you get to the end of it, instead of listening to a decayed version of the original monologue, you could actually take that and turn it into a completely new piece. And if someone else didn't know that it was actually based on this old recording and they didn't have that reference point, they would experience it completely differently.
1: Well, and you see that sort of thing, like it's funny, like uh, I think about even in with modern DAWs and modern music that that people can do, you know, and and, uh, like a grain table manipulation and stuff, like Mm -hmm. you can take a sound, any sound from one thing and turn it into something completely different, and and where it's a, it's the same exact sound, but now you've you've transformed it into something that um, is new and exciting, and it's almost like it's resurrecting that decay in a way. Oh yeah, absolutely, and I think that is,
0: I think that is the most important component and the most important reason why. Uh, creating music with computers is like a really important aspect of our musical generation right now. I think like algorithmically generated composing is something that's really, really important for that reason, because you can manipulate sound in ways that are extraordinarily precise and create different sonic structures, if you will, that, uh, differ strongly and do things that uh, more organic modes of sound generation are incapable of producing.
2: You kind of turn that whole argument almost on its head. <clears throat> and and I feel we're getting into some deep things, you know, matrix E and meaning of life stuff. But uh, the, the idea that a machine or something or, or just generating something from an, from an algorithm or an equation, I mean, that's kind of what serialism did, is not somehow human or not really um, lifelike or, or musical. Uh, and yet you're saying that's almost imperative right now to, to use computers and, and all that. But um, oh, it's, yeah. it's so interesting. And the other thing I was thinking about with the degradation, or at least from our perceived vantage point, I remember you or some others at Banff took a picture of a picture of a picture. And this yeah, whole- Yeah, I conce- was thinking
0: of that actually. <laughs> yeah,
2: this whole concept of, uh, you know, an MP3, for example, being a, um, a, co- a condensed version of a piece. And so, you know, you want it in the wave file and every time you copy it, you lose a little bit of, I mean, this negligible, you know, you lose a little bit of clarity. Um, and, and this also takes me uh, just to connect to life, the idea of, you know, the fountain of youth and that, that elusive thing, how, how do we continue to go if we keep degrading? We're, from the moment we're born, we're on our path to death. And I don't want to be yeah. too morbid here, but um, I remember when, when I was studying bio, I was and um, looking at, I did a, genet- a course in genetics, and one of the main things and one of the, um, I guess, focuses that some researchers have looked at to prolong life is, is telomerase. You know, we have these telomeres at the end of our DNA, which uh, after each replication in our cells gets cut. And, and uh, our bodies are designed in such a way that there's so much extra non-essential DNA at the end of our, our double helix uh, helices that that can be cut every, you know, every replication cycle and it's okay. But at some point it gets into some uh, very important DNA. and. So how do we extend life, maybe extend the telomeres in all of our DNA and all of our cells, which is obviously sort of impossible to do. But the, the concept that it's there and that we could somehow live forever without degradation or without change
1: and right. What would be the consequences of that? Yeah. And
2: it's just cool. Like, I wonder if music, you were talking about music being a representation of life or a condensation of it, like, uh, like the Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto, which side note for everybody out there at AJ plays, um, uh, and, and quite well, but if that could be that 45 minutes is like a, uh, a little glimpse into the life, you know, a personal life of who, whoever is listening to it. Uh, I love that concept. Uh, and it also brought up, now I'm just uh, riffing here, but brought up the idea that uh, every experience you know, is, is different somehow, but then there's a maybe a qualitative or quantitative, I don't know, difference between differences. So what I mean is uh, if, if you perform the same piece, and we talk about this with interpreting a, a particular piece, every time you perform it, it's going to be a little different. Even if you try to do exactly the same thing, um, even if you were to get a computer to replicate it, it's going to be in a different space. People are going to listen to it with different ears. Um, maybe somebody's had lunch, a different lunch, one day, and, and hears it differently. You know, so every single experience, everything in, in our lives, is an experience. Even if it's an exact duplicate, is not. It's still, it's still unique. Um, and so then maybe the whole concept of unique uh, doesn't matter. It kind of breaks apart in uh, in it in its, you know, on its own sort of so i don't know what yeah. you think about that
0: um those i think that i think that it's completely true that um in a very non-trivial way that even in cases where you're able to create complete duplicates that there are always differences and the reason the reason for that is because of the fact that i think that experience is always a uh, synthesis between an object and a subject, a human, and the thing the human experiences, and, um, because of that fact, because there's that like twofold relationship that synthesizes into one experience, um, it's almost like a you can almost think of it as something like a function in math, where a piece of music is a function and a human being can be an input, for example. And even if the function is the exact same, for example, you put mm-hmm. a different person through that, and mm-hmm. what ends up uh, coming out at the other end of the, the like the region of that piece of music mm-hmm. uh, that that person accesses is going to be completely different, right. you know, yeah. because yeah. they've functioned as a different input, you know, for that particular experience. So I think mm-hmm. that, yeah, and I think that as human beings uh are not only different from each other in terms of what types of relationships they can have to different experiences and uh different like materials but uh human beings are also constantly changing themselves which can mm-hmm. radically alter how mm-hmm. they experience material
1: you know well mm-hmm. and also we can we can communicate to each other in a in a way for so so you know i can uh, the three of us can experience something at the same time, even experience different things, and then through communication, we can then, I guess, experience that again—not just mm-hmm. the same way, but with new eyes, and we can we can kind of. Um, you know, we, we just having this conversation, for example, gives me a new take on on certain pieces and certain things I need to look at. And 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 so when I listen to those things, it's, I'm going to be hearing it with with completely different ears than I would have, you know, 40 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's that's absolutely. another kind of unique and and exciting thing that 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 we kind of bring to the table. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely. You, I mean yeah communication is always altering the
0: parameters that we use like it adjusts them so that we can perceive like like the the phenomenon differently uh but the really fun thing about it too is that we're so unpredictable and we can't know exactly how what we'll experience may affect uh what we listen to or what we look at later on you know so there's there's this aspect in which like uh, you, once you have that conversation and you go listen to that piece of music afterwards, it's going to be a real moment of discovery because you can't anticipate what's going to come out of it, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's right. that, and that, but that, which makes it exciting because, and mm-hmm. that's true. Like if, 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 um, so I just explained it by the way, the name of that, the series of albums was called everywhere at, at the end of time. It's by a recording by the ter- caretaker. Who mm-hmm. is Leland Kirby? Um, but okay. I, so I just kind of explained this to you. If I could explain that perfectly in like a it may, maybe a a perfect digital form, you wouldn't have to experience it because you would already understand it. But mm-hmm. now by because of 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 how we're built, now you can go and experience it, and you could say, "Oh, that was a great." piece or, or I got this out of it, or, or I just saw this, we can talk about movies and even be spoiled in movies and, and we can still experience that same movie, that same experience and, and have a different and, and even, uh, um, more enriching experience with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it brings up the question of, is it even, is it even possible? For example, to give an explanation of something that is the thing itself, because an explanation of a thing is always something that <laughs> hey. connects to uh, the like the phenomena. It's like always it's always referential. Yeah. Um, or would we like, even want that? Like, would that mm-hmm. even be desirable? Exactly, because maybe probably the the most pure digital representation of that album you could give me would uh, to be if you could end up uh converting it into machine code and then showing me the binary output for example of it and but then i would look at that and i wouldn't have any kind of experience at all other than maybe some confusion or a little bit of annoyance that you would go through such a process to do that to me no exactly that's brilliant Um, um there's a way in which um we translate between like different phenomena and like We think that translations have to be similar because they're mappings from one thing to another thing. But what the, the in-between stuff, you know, what filters you put translations through completely change what the essence of the material actually is, you know, um, which always makes me like, uh, which makes me think that, you know, there is, there's a, you can take any kind of material whatsoever and create some sort of function to generate some new material out
1: of it. And I mean, that's what creativity is. I think. Well, and, and, and what that does is it, it, it's both creative and destructive at the same time. And, and, oh, I'm, thinking, yeah. and I'm thinking about like, um, um, and and I don't really necessarily want to go down this path, but I think it's an important thing that, that people can relate to. Like if you think about scripture and you think about old, let's talk about old texts in general and yeah. you do a translation of an old text. Well, what does that old text say? That old text, you know, maybe it literally says that, but is that really what the author is trying to say? Because mm-hmm. they have different experiences. They have different length. Like, what does that mean? Well, it really means this. And so you end up having a, uh, um uh, a a a tel- a game of telephone of ideas that kind of translate and so we only get even with the 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 greatest uh um translations it's still not the thing and mm-hmm. and and, and that, of course, you know, it comes up in scripture a lot. That's where I, yeah. the context that I use it in, but it comes up in all sorts of ways. And and with music, I could see that very much. So you like, and we talk about this, like, what did Beethoven really mean? <laughs> what, did he, what did he want to hear when he wrote that piece of music down? And was that desirable compared to what we hear today?
0: Yeah, it's one of those, it, yeah, it's one of those interesting veins in which as creative people, we tend to be obsessed with the purity of, uh, the ideas of different figures. And we want to know quote unquote what they like intentionality is extraordinarily important. Um, when the fact is that creativity is produced with through misinterpretations in a lot of ways, (laughs) um, you know, like it's the fact that Beethoven, uh, not only it wasn't, uh, it wasn't unintentional. It wasn't a mistake, but he took, some structures from Haydn and Mozart for example and augmented them to extents that would be completely unreasonable to either of them you know right. um like ex- by experimenting with register and extending harmonies for example and using for example um mediants as a way to organize a macro section within a, an form rather than as some kind of like Local harmony, um, like creativity is by t- creativity happens by taking the purity of people's ideas, like making them impure
1: and then making them mm. pure for yourself again. Oh, you know, there, there's a great saying in jazz, and a lot of people know it. And it's that if you make a mistake, just play it again, and then it's not a mistake. <laughs> and what's funny about yeah. that is that's like, literally, too, yeah. <laughs> well, it's yeah, right, yeah. but it's literally true. Like, if you mm-hmm. hit a wrong note. And then you purposely hit that wrong note again. Then that really wasn't a mistake. It ends up being the pure, pure that mistake becomes the pure idea that you just came up with.
2: I think yeah. there's a little difference, maybe because of the uh, medium or, or the expectations of the genre in jazz versus you know Western right. classical art music. So the, the wrong note thing might not fly, but there are other p- parameters that I think can. And I, I'm always I always think of, about a master class. Uh, I think it was with Shandor at, at IU a long time ago. I mean, this is before my time where somebody was playing um, the E minor prelude of, of Chopin, which uh, is one of the first Chopin pieces anybody plays, really. And most student piano students have gone through that. And um, whatever, for whatever reason, maybe the performer wasn't used to the piano or something like that. And they started it out a little too loud for their, their taste, you know, objectively, if if we can put an objective marker on a, on dynamics like that's so many hertz, uh, which you really <laughs> can't. Which I that's one thing I love about dynamics is that they're relative; they're not um, right. objective. But uh, what happened was immediately after playing too loudly, the first note or two, and and this has come to me. Uh, this is already a second or third hand account. Um, the the performer uh, got very quiet, you know, and and went back to the piano that was indicated. And afterwards, Shandor said, well, you can't do that because then we, it sounds like a mistake. And it also sounds like uh, they're disconnected. The beginnings disconnected from the rest of the piece. And so I said, if you start that way, continue on in that vein and try to get back to where you want to get back to, you know, in, in an organic, which is such an elusive concept too, in an organic way. Uh, and I just thought, wow, what a, what a cool thing you can kind of misinterpret but then reinterpret. And then that's your interpretation. And it might not be correct, whatever that means, but at the moment it works. And uh, yeah, I just, I always think about that when we play and and I play, I think I'm very attuned to the audience when I play. Uh, and so that I'm not replicating what, uh, what I always do, but I try to gauge where their ears are at, and where their attention lies. And if I can do something in the music that would uh, that would change that, that's still true to the music and true to my uh, my interpretation of it, but bring their ears back in, you know, if
0: that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, classical music uh, as a performance art specifically is more representational, I would say, than something like mm-hmm. composing because part of performance is not only about trying to find new ways to do things, but there's actually a really fundamental quality of being a performer that involves having a particularly kind of sacred respect for history, for example, Mm -hmm. and bringing history into the present for new people to experience. Um, And part of that is preserving some sort of fundamental structure right which in classical performance would be for example making sure you're playing the right notes and the right rhythm you know based on the elements of the score for example um but i think that uh classical music as a composing tool um the even knowing what the foundation is like qualitatively might even be harder there than in something like performing where at least you have the really rigid baseline of making sure that you conform to some sort of representational parameters you know being this being the score in whatever sense
2: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah wow this is cool. <laughs> I feel like
2: we're just uh, taking a moment so, to take it in. Um,
1: I'd I, I like, I, I like to, uh, I need to bring back up. <laughs> we're talking to uh, AJ Matula, uh, who has, and I am really looking, I, I honestly haven't checked out his podcast yet, but I will today because uh, this has been such a fascinating discussion. Uh, his podcast is called The Road to Reason. You can check it out on on YouTube. Um just put in um just just road type in reason. the search the road to reason um aj and and i'm sure it, it's one of the first ones that that will pop up um what what kind of things are you trying to do and and by the way we if you don't mind i'm just going to put you on the spot here we got to have you on to talk more about this cuz this has been so much fun yeah, yeah. of course <laughs> That'd be great. i'd love to yeah i'm what, having a great time oh uh, i'm glad to hear that where what what are you trying to accomplish with your podcast what what should people expect Yeah, uh, my goal is to create a
0: space for people to think about. like philosophically re- related topics in a way that can be appealing to them wherever they're at um, in their studies. For anyone, whether someone is interested in philosophy because they just read the Wikipedia article on it and they think that it's cool, or someone who uh, is doing a degree in it, for example, I want to do my best to create material that could at least be interesting to anyone, regardless of how much they actually know about the topic with the condition that they just have some sort of interest and yeah. uh someone who's not interested will never end up finding it so <laughs> i don't have to worry about the people who aren't interested <laughs> um uh so like for example in my podcast i typically try to create uh like scaffolding level of questions where some of the questions are really really fundamental and attuned to more basic things and then i'll have a couple questions that are something like really really specific about that person's work for example um much more like micromanaging or picky for example Um, and Mm -hmm. then i have like more broad and general topics so i would say that my goal is in doing the podcast is to just make philosophy more accessible to anyone in the same kind of way that Uh, physicists right now are having a lot of success writing uh, books about physics for the public that don't utilize a lot of higher math and are much more analogical in terms of the presentation of ideas, um, because that gives everybody an opportunity to Participate. So I kind of want to just create an opportunity for everyone to participate in philosophy in some way because I think it's a, an important discipline.
1: Well, and I wanted to ask you because I think I think it's important to to um, and maybe this is where we it would be a good place to finish on. Why is it important? Like a lot of people might think, might hear us discussing these this kind of um, esoteric kind of ideas and these metaphysical thoughts and 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 think of it as maybe navel gazing or whatever. <laughs> like why? why is having the basic understanding of, um, philosophy, maybe formal philosophy might be a good way to say it. Why is that an important, uh, thing to people kind of have in their toolbox?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I feel like we could probably take up another hour just talking about that, but I'll no try doubt. not to be super annoying and give a like brief succinct answer as best as I can. Uh, I think that philosophy I'll speak in terms of my personal life. There's no tool in my life that has been better at getting me out of damaging thought loops than philosophy to be completely practical, whether like intellectually or emotionally, because philosophy is all about questioning the fundamental assumptions at the lowest level of any different and a specific type of phenomenon and Usually scientific revolutions in of themselves are philosophical in the sense that what happens is that there's some particular thinker or figure who decides to say that um, some uh, past uh, collection of information about some given phenomenon actually isn't true or isn't true in, under some conditions, and they create a new system to accommodate that. So, for example, like uh, Albert Einstein Uh, took Newton's physics, for example, and said, oh, this is actually not really, really applicable to how matter that's moving at the speed of light operates, for example. And then relativity happened. And that was what actually a famous philosopher named Thomas Kuhn calls a paradigm shift. And a paradigm shift is when the most basic questions that have to do with anything whatsoever are up for grabs all of a sudden and they aren't self-evident anymore Mm -hmm. and there's no field or no discipline in the world that makes that more apparent than philosophy because philosophy is about that the most basic elements of the most basic assumptions in a particular region of thinking and uh it's always when when I'm practicing, or when I'm writing, or reading, thinking about a problem, or even if I'm having a personal problem, like like in my relationship with a person, um, where I'll take a step back and say, "Well, what am I? What am I assuming about this situation? And like, what could I change about the way I'm thinking, or the way I'm doing this, um, or the way I'm interpreting this, to completely shift my viewpoint?" Uh, Kaleidoscopically. And for me, philosophy has been the like number one go to for achieving that in my own life. I would say that uh, when it comes to like getting better at uh, playing piano, for example, if I'm struggling with some kind of technique, I will get into a mindset where I assume that all of the technique that I built up to that point is wrong for the sake of experimentation. And I will start just doing things that are completely wacky, like playing with like really, really different fingerings or like playing with like my arm at an angle that I kind of think is stupid like initially, but like I'll give it a shot because I'm allowing everything in my life as a musician at that moment to be up for grabs. And those are the moments where I actually have the breakthrough and I'm like, oh, this is what I was doing that was hampering me from playing this mm. passage in this way, for example. And when I just simply add this, then I'm able to play it in the way that I want. So.
1: That's, That's awesome. that I, th- I can't think of a better endorsement for having you all back on and talking about mm-hmm. the basics of philosophy. <laughs> yeah. So. I'd, I'd love to that's that's wonderful well i want to thank you and Elias once again you were right man you bring you bring up the best guests you, Thanks he's smart for, he is <laughs> he is <laughs> <laughs> um absolutely thank you thank you aj really appreciate you having you on this has been uh this is aj matula and his podcast again is the road to reason um podcast yeah, thank you so much You are listening to End of Love Remain.